series, Ethics for Eternity. Uh, last week, I was not privileged to be here to hear uh, Tommy's lesson, but I've since heard it on uh, CD and heard what he said about me, about getting out of town while he was speaking and Freeman being gone and all that, so I heard it. I heard that. But it was, uh, it was an outstanding lesson, and uh, you know, last year when Steve Pell spoke uh, on this uh, series, I was not here then, and I, I got a copy of the CD, and I said, I'll just listen to that. Well, you know, today I realized I hadn't listened to that yet. So I'm glad he's not preaching on procrastination tonight. <laughs> so I thought I'd better listen to Steve's lesson from last year, see if I want to come tonight and uh, hear him. And <laughs> no, I'd be here anyway, of course. But it was an outstanding lesson. I had heard it was, and it truly was. I told him he has no concerns about uh, standing before this audience. He did a beautiful job last year. It was a poignant and powerful lesson. And we look forward to a, another one tonight from one of our good elders, Brother Steve Pell Sr., as he speaks to us on the subject of situation ethics. Steve. I'm glad you told that, Jim. I was going to mention it to uh, Tommy about last year, but uh, <laughs> I want to, uh, as an introduction, tell you of a story that came to light recently of an incident that took, took place some 21 years ago. A woman was at work in her office for a large insurance company. And it was an ordinary day. Uh, she was doing her job at her desk. And sometime that morning, her son called. And that wasn't out of the ordinary. But this time, he was rather ill. He was having trouble breathing. So he was going to the doctor. So she encouraged him to do that. As the day went on, he <clears throat> called one more time that evening. And he said, Mom, they're going to put me in the hospital. It's, uh, there's a problem with my lungs. They think I have pneumonia. Would you mind bringing Dad with you tomorrow to Atlanta? So she made plans to do that. And uh, that evening she got to thinking about uh, the conversation with her son. <clears throat> and with, from working in, as a volunteer in a hospital, she knew the complications and what the indications would be of a young man as healthy as he is to have pneumonia at that young age. So she went home and discussed it with her husband, and they were making plans to go to the hospital the next morning. But things kept popping up in her mind, so she got to thinking and she called one of the other sons and talked with him for a while. And as she slowly walked back to the living room and sat down next to her husband, she told him, our son Joe is gay. And what we may be facing tomorrow is AIDS. So her husband was a, had been a minister all of his life. And the last few years before his heart attack, he had been the uh, minister over education in a large religious association. 
And not only was he a preacher, but he was actually teaching the Sunday school teachers how to teach. He was over the education. So he got up from the couch and went out back for what seemed like hours and thought the situation over. You see, to him, all sins were equal to God, but not many in the church. There was something about homosexuality that made people want to turn away. And the Father knew all the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, Romans 1, 21 through 28, Genesis 19, Jude 7, oh, and Leviticus 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That happened to... Uh, Strike a note with me. I, I remember Jim in a la recent lesson brought up Jeremiah 6 at verse 14. And as I was looking at that last week, I noticed the next verse says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish, me, punish them, they shall be cast down says the Lord. <clears throat> the Father had uh, known all of his life what he thought about the verses concerning homosexuality. He called it a sin, and like many unrepented sins, he believed it could lead to separation from God after death. He believed this narrative about sexual identity. He had heard that homosexuality was a choice to ignore God's design. Those that worked with formerly gay said it was a phase caused by abuse, by absent fathers, or by overbearing mothers. The cure was repentance, sometimes celibacy, and a hope that the desire could quiet with help from the Almighty. In making the trip, to Atlanta to see his son. He didn't want to have to tell his son's friends that they were in sin, nor did he like the idea of telling his dying son, if, if that's what it turned out to be, was AIDS, <clears throat> that his soul was sicker than his body. So as they made their way to the hospital room where their son was at, there was a pause as they entered the room. The son was waiting for that first few words from his dad. He needed that assurance. And the dad broke out in tears. And he told the son, we're going to love you the way you are. Don't worry. Nothing is going to change between us. As they talked that evening, The son expressed to the, his father that he had been sexually abused by an authoritative figure as a teen. The events confused and hurt him. But he said, I'd always been attracted to men. He said he thought he was born gay. But he, he also felt that he was still in a safe condition, that he was still a Christian. 
as the parents went back home after the visit with their son, it bothered the father so much, he went back and reread scripture about homosexuality. And he reread the different interpretations of scripture. And he wondered if the verses mentioning homosexuality were meant to condemn rape and pedophilia and not love relationship between men or two women. He also asked the question, how is a man supposed to read scripture? What else did the church get wrong? Can you toss out certain parts of the Bible and not others? Why were divorce, premarital sex, and greed, which were all condemned in the Bible, overlooked, but not homosexuality? And then he began to ask God, why would he make someone like this? Why would you tell them that they have to live alone all their life? And as time went on, the more he studied, the more... He tried to understand. He came to this conclusion. There was no longer conflict in his mind between homosexuality and Christianity. And the hundreds of years of church tradition had been missteps. And it was only a matter of time before the church realized this. And as the son came to realize that he was going to die, he asked his father one day, he said, Dad, Am I going to hell after I die? His reply was, Oh, son, once you're accepted into God's family, you're not going to be kicked out. But after the son's death, he became more outspoken about gay rights and first opportunity to make his plea to the church. He stood up and made this comment. He said, We've all sinned. When are we going to stop trying to play God? And as the years have rolled on, he slowly backed away from the church. He didn't go for a long time. And now in his thinking, he, he wishes for some grand middle ground, a church that teaches Bible but doesn't talk about the gays. In reading this article, and some of you have probably read it, do you remember what Jesus said? And I'm going to paraphrase Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not love me more than family in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What has happened in this story is, is happening to thousands across our nation. It's... Uh, it's something that I've found, and I'm going to make this one comment. If you do not understand anything else this evening, understand this. Satan has perfect timing. If you remember, probably those of you that are old enough, 50 years ago, or in the 1960s, there was so much change coming about. what was to be known as baby boomers came of age and they were be, being uh, pulled apart by Vietnam War, political issues. I remember the remarks of uh, some that you're not to trust anyone over 30. 
they be began to use terminology that we had not heard. And hey, I was at, in that age. I was in, in the 60s. But uh, they had uh, began to have protests. They'd call it a sit-in. I think we've experienced some of that here at the court, courthouse lawn. But they would have sit-ins and uh, protests. We began to hear phrases like, uh, you know, you, we've all got to just let it hang out. We've got to love one another. And it was peace, love, and rock and roll. And somewhere along the line, if you believe you can look into a society and understand where they're coming from by listening to their music, you know, that, that makes sense to me. We, we went from uh, little Ricky singing about Hello, Mary Lou, and Elvis singing about Love Me Tender to songs from um, perhaps Kinks would sing about Lola. And if no one's ever heard about Lola, Lola was someone they, the group spent an evening at a, a club with and was really entertained and come to find out about wee hours in the morning, she had the five o'clock shadow. One of the lines in their song says, you know, I'm not dumb, but I don't understand why she walks like a woman and talks like a man. Lola was transgender. But it wasn't just the rock and roll, the country. Uh, Tammy Wynette was singing about Stand By Your Man and then turns around and sings about her divorce. And then you've got George Strait singing about all my exes live in Texas. So we have a transition in our music that reflects what, is, what went on in, in our, our history. And nowadays, the punk rock and hip hop, they talk about popping caps, murder, and suicide. But as far as Satan having perfect timing, in the mid-1960s, when all this is taking place, a man by the name of Joseph Fletcher was an Episcopal priest, a member of the Euthanasia Education Council, and an advocate for Planned Parenthood and abortion. Uh, Planned Parenthood, but he was a supporter of euthanasia and abortion. And he published his book, called Situation Ethics. That is our topic this evening. And he became known as the father of Situation Ethics. And his idea came from 1 John, verse 4, verse 8. He said, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And Joseph Fletcher took this, this verse and just carried it as far as he could go. And he came to the conclusion that I have attained, I have come to the knowledge of the truth in this statement. It's all about love. As long as we love our fellow man, we can do no wrong if it's all done in love. It reminds me of a preacher that used an old farmer as an expression one time. The old farmer worked hard all his life, and he would hear about an easier way to do a job, how to plant corn or, or cotton. And some, somebody would want to come up with a better way, and they would have it out here in the wagon. The old farmer would go out and pull that cover back on the wagon, and, 
Every time he said he was so disappointed because it was hard work. Never got easier. Farming took hard work. And it's the same with preaching the gospel and winning souls. It's, there's no easy way. It's hard work. We have a better way to communicate nowadays, as this congregation knows, where we, we support a program that reaches out to millions. But Joseph Fletcher was not the first. There were many preceding him. Situation ethics is a, a phenomenon that wasn't invented by modern theologians or social scientists, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I've used this scripture in, in one other lesson here, and I'm going to use it again tonight. Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5. For God, uh, let me get the right one. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Joseph Fletcher had come to was the idea as Satan is, is expressing to Eve the circumstances which he alleged would justify setting aside God's law. He summarized his idea in terms of six propositions he came to identify as the fundamentals of Christian conscience. This theory stresses freedom from prefabricated decisions and prescriptive rules, freedom from concrete absolutes, Freedom from code ethics, stern and iron-bound do's and don'ts, prescribed conduct, and legalistic morality. These were all looked upon unfavorably. But what he embraced was non-universal nature of situational approach, accommodation to pluralism, spontaneity and variety in moral decision-making, Constant emphasis is placed on love as the only intrinsic good with the loving thing to do depending on the situation that arises. The situationist feels free to tinker with the scripture, to form a, coal a coalition with the principle of the greatest good for the greatest number. And although it's been decades since Fletcher expressed his concept, it's not an exaggeration to say that situationism has gone to seed in the United States. It's gone to seed in the denominational church. And it's trying its best to go to seed in the Lord's church. Some examples is, of course, the use of instrumental music. Or what about joint worship? with support with those who openly teach error. From a 2003 survey on American and moral behavior, a pollster named George Barnum said this, this is reflected of a nation where morality is generally defined according to one's feelings. In a postmodern society where people do not acknowledge any moral absolutes, if a person feels justified engaging in a specific behavior, 
then they do not make a connection with the immoral nature of the action. He continues to say, until people recognize that there are moral absolutes and attempt to live in harmony with them, we are likely to see a continued decay of our moral foundation. But there are a couple of contradictions in what Joseph Fletcher was saying. The failure to grasp the Bible identification of the central concern of human beings to love and honor, to glorify and obey God. Fletcher was silent on this subject. Instead, he focused his entire theory on love for his fellow man. While love for fellow man is crucial, it must be viewed in the right, rightful position beneath the greater, the higher responsibility of loving God. One cannot love God without loving one's neighbor, but theoretically, you could love your neighbor and not love God. Therefore, love for fellow man must be viewed in the larger framework on focusing one's life on pleasing God first and foremost. 1 John 5, verse 3, if he would have taken that verse into consideration, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and for us to comply with the number of the with the number one responsibility in life, we must consult the absolute, prefabricated, prescriptive, iron-bound do's and don'ts of Scripture. This, by definition, is love for God. It follows then that Fletcher was wrong in identifying the only intrinsic good as love for fellow man. According to the Bible, intrinsic good includes fraternal love. But superseding that is the love, the love is phileo love, love for God the Father. Consequently, God defines what love entails in man's treatment of both God and fellow man. By those definitions, or but those definitions are found in the Bible in the form of prescriptive rules, regulations, and ironclad. Do's and don'ts. The second law, or a second flaw, rather, in his situationism is the re redefinition of love. His idea of love is materialistic and is secular rather than scriptural and spiritual. Love to Fletcher is what humans decide is good or best in a given situation. The human hum humanistic approach allows man and his circumstances to become the criteria for defining what is moral, rather than allowing God to define the parameters of moral behavior. But the only way for an individual to know how to love is to go to the Bible and to discern there the specifics of a loving behavior. When Paul declared love is fulfilling the law in Romans 13 at verse 19, he didn't mean that it was possible to love one's neighbor while dispensing with the law. Rather, he meant that when you conduct yourselves in genuinely, genuinely loving manner, you're automatically acting in harmony with the law. In other words, you're not killing or stealing or coveting or bearing false witness. 
God in his laws defined and pinpointed how to live. To treat any of God's laws as optional or flexible or occasional is to undermine the very foundation of love. In situationism, human beings become the standard of morality which is in direct conflict with the words of the inspired prophet. Do you remember what Jeremiah said in chapter 10, verse 23? O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. And sin is not a transgression of, of God's law, according to the situationist. Rather, sin is the exploitation or use of persons. It is withholding what a person perceives to be the means to personal happiness. By Fletcher's definition, many people in the Bible hist or biblical history were not sinners at all, but were in fact mature, responsible individuals who acted lovingly, such as Eve, Lot and his wife, Nadab and Abihu, and Saul. But on the other hand, if situationism is correct, many people in the Bible were not righteous, as the Bible claims they were. Such as Noah, Joseph, Joshua and Caleb, and John the Baptist. Here were people who were set aside, who set aside the preference of their fellow man and ignored their contemporaries' desire for happiness and self-fulfillment and instead followed divine prescriptions even though those precepts were considered to be contrary to the consensus view. If you take into account the components of, of situationism, Uzzah would have to receive Fletcher's sanctions as a loving, moral person. His motives was unquestionably good since he wanted to avoid the unpleasant and foreseeable consequences of the Ark of the Covenant falling from the wagon. The means that he used were the only ones available to him at that particular instance in time. His only mistake, which resulted in his immediate execution by God, was his failure to give heed to the prefabricated, prescriptive, legalistic, absolute, iron-bound dumps of Numbers 4 at verse 15, in which God said, don't touch. Looking at some of the applications of situationism, we find that Fletcher approves of divorce. Divorce if the, is okay if the emotional and spiritual welfare of both parents and children in a particular family can be served best. He would approve of suicide of a captured soldier under torture to avoid being, uh, betraying fellow soldiers to the enemy. In some cases, lying is more Christian than telling the truth. And you know, we may have to work on that one. You know, I, I can see the brother saying, you know, he must have got his tie from the goodwill. Look at that thing. And he walks up, hey, brother, you look, you look good this evening. You know, that's not one of our, our flaws, I don't think. But in some cases, Fletcher says, 
Is a girl who gives her chastity for her country's sake any less approvable than a boy who gives his leg or his life? His answer is no. What about a couple who cannot marry legally or permanently but live together faithfully and honorably and responsibly? They're living in virtue, aren't they in living in, in Christianity? What are their view on abortion? This is their statement. When anybody sticks to the rules, even though people surf, suffer as consequences, that is immoral. Even if, it, if we grant, for example, that generally or commonly it is wrong to interrupt pregnancy, it would nevertheless be right to do so following a rape or incest, at least if the victim wanted an abortion. I read a comment recently from former President Ronald Reagan. He once said, I've noticed that everyone who is for abortion is already born. There's just not enough speaking up for the unborn. This is getting perhaps into a lesson a few weeks down the road, but at present time we're nearing 55 million abortions. I remember after the Vietnam War, they began to talk about a war memorial and they discussed the number of 52,000 soldiers gave their lives. Young men in their prime died for this country. And everyone thought, you know, how terrible. And then on 9-11, there was over 3,000 died in one day. And I remember looking at the news reports and you see people in the street wiping the tears away. They could not believe it. this has happened to us. So many people have died today. At last count, we are now over 3,000 a day in the United States. 1% are survivors of rape or incest. 75% say that a child would interfere with their work or school or other reasons. 84% are unmarried, 25% living with partners with whom they're not married, 33% are between 20 and 25. But what about the side effects from, from abortion? And this is easy information to find. Side effects in later years is eating disorders, alcohol, drug abuse, and guilt, which leads to contemplating suicide. Tell me there's something right about that. When we abandon the standard conveyed by God from whom flows infinite goodness, the means for assessing human behavior is then up for grabs. We will begin misrepresenting the biblical treatment of Christian liberty and freedom. And we will maintain that freedom in Christ means being relieved of the burden of a legal code. The Bible doesn't speak about the flexibility of God's law. Rather, with sweeping and precise terminology, Jesus articulated the sum and the, sum, the substance of exactly what it means to be free in Christ. In John 8, verses 15 through 59, Jesus defended the validity of his own testimony. 
he declared the only basis upon which an individual may be his disciples. To be Christ's disciple, one must continue in his word. He must live a life of obedience to the will of Christ. Genuine discipleship is gauged by our persistent and meticulous compliance with the words of Jesus. Genuine freedom is achieved by means of obedience to righteousness, Romans 6 at verse 16. Freedom for sin and spiritual death is possible only by obedience to God. Jesus said in John 15 at verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Joseph Fletcher was missing this. Jesus was not in sympathy with today's lax thinkers who softened doctrine and the binding nature of the law in the name of grace, freedom, or compassion. Distinction between the letter of the law, some may say, and the spirit of law. Some say, well, you know, it's necessary, even mandatory, to violate the letter of the law in order to act in harmony with the spirit of the law. This line of thinking naturally breeds a relaxed attitude toward obedience. One person explained this, how his feelings of devotion to Jesus made him feel that as long as he maintained a sense of nearness to Christ, he didn't have to fret over the nitpicky concerns. Another person claims that she didn't have to sweat the small stuff since she was living her life in recognition of God's grace and felt certain that Jesus would cut her some slack. The small stuff to which she referred included such things as, will God accept instrumental, instrumental music in worship? Or how about, would he approve of unscriptural divorce and remarriage? And also, what about sprinkling? Would it pass for baptism? God has not given permission to any man to transgress his law. If you suffer because of keeping his law, Jesus said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5 at verse 12. If you can save a loved one from suffering by breaking God's law, don't do it. You're taking away their opportunity to persevere and receive blessings from God. You're also breaking God's law, bringing his displeasure upon yourself. To break God's eternal law for temporal concern is to focus upon things of this world and to ignore eternity. I read... Uh, a thought by Ralph Emerson late, uh, just a few weeks ago in which he said, when it is darkest, men see stars. You know, any other time I would just let that right on by. It makes sense when, when it is darkest. But as I thought about that, I remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 at, four, at verse 14. Are ye not the light of the world? 
Do you realize that we are in a time now when things seem to be getting darker? You don't have to look very far to realize that. But what he's saying here, you want to let your light shine, you don't have to try very hard. The darker it gets, the brighter your light appears. What an opportunity for us as Christians to be an example to those round about us. I appreciate your time. I, I made a promise to you about uh, last week about uh, places that I would not shop, and, and I've run out of time, but I will tell you this. Last year I saw the advertisement on the internet, and many others probably have as well, about a, a company that's in the hardware business, and they were presenting their favoritism or their support for gay pride. And there was a wagon of men dressed up on the back of that wagon, and they had marked through the name of the company. It no longer gave the company's name, but it said Homo Depot. They support gay pride. This year, there is a, a brag on the Internet that shows their celebration this year, and there's two men as go-go dancers with very little on, and within sight is a workshop for young children to learn how to use a nail and a hammer and a saw. You tell me what kind of message that is sending, and I'll tell you that's not a place I will shop any longer. Thank you for your time this evening. Appreciate your attention. We appreciate you, Steve, and this presentation. Very poignant again, powerful material, and obviously well uh, researched. And uh, I just bought some privacy screens at Lowe's. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we appreciate his uh, strong stand for the truth, his very clear presentation of uh, this subject, and it is indeed getting very dark, but his point is so well made about how much brighter we can shine in a world that is so deeply darkened by, by sin, and we certainly need to do that. We appreciate it so much, Steve, your preparation in this presentation uh, tonight. Thanks again to all of you who are here tonight, and uh, we will uh, uh, stand and be uh, closing in our prayer, and Brother Ted Truitt will be leading. So let's stand again.